Hello, I'm Gemma Kearney and this is Life on Our Terms, a podcast with The Open University. Today, as usual, I'm going to be chatting to another stellar guest about their education and career journey. Rather than follow the traditional idea of success, these people have found their way to current success via a more interesting route. And I want to find out a bit about what they've learned as they've done it and how they keep educating themselves along the way. So far in this series, we've covered sport, tech and history. And today we're going to be talking about a subject that I really care about. It's something super important to all of us and that we all use all the time. I want to talk about language on our terms and how we can just maybe unlearn some of our preconceived ideas about communication. Let's think back to how English is taught at school. Though Shakespeare is thrilling in parts, I don't know if it was the most accessible entry point into literature and language. Either way, I would have loved to have had my next guest teaching me English at GCSE. He's got some incredible ideas about the power of words and how we can unlock them. And he talks a lot about how our education system could change to encourage everyone in their creativity and ability to take risks. He's absolutely rewritten the rules and then probably rapped about them. So I'm chuffed to introduce ex-teacher turned award-winning poet, podcaster and international rap battler, Mark Grist. I can't wait to get his take on the power of language and education. Hey, Mark. Welcome along. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Rap battling. I didn't necessarily expect to be talking about that when I was uh, asked to do this series about progression and education. How would you explain what it actually is? So rap battles are contests normally between two opposing MCs. Uh, They face each other and they get a set amount of time to uh, verbally box with each other to say why they are better than the other person. Uh, They get to brag about their own qualities and raise their own status and show off. And they also, as they do it, they point out the weaknesses of their opponent and they try and kind of undermine their opponent, make them seem as useless as they can and by lowering their status in comparison with them. You can't just go, you're a loser, though. You have to use all these kind of rhymes and techniques and restraints. And that's part of the way that you show off. And it turns out that I guess a lot of the time I'd spent at university studying poetry and restraints was kind of useful in, in, in exploring this kind of world. But, yeah, it was quite it was quite scary to go, go and go and take part in. You just made it sound quite intellectual, which I'm sure it is. But how mean <laughs> is it? Oh, there's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a real underbelly art form, which means that there's no way I don't think you could go in and clean it up because as soon as you did, it would re-exist again within another underbelly. And so you can say and do anything in a rap battle. And I, I mean anything. Uh, there is a bit of a, a limit in the sense that you want to get the crowd with you and you really are working with the crowd. And I've seen rap battles where battlers have said things that have not gone down well with the crowd and they've been booed off the stage. So you can say whatever you like, but if it's perceived by the audience that what you're saying is offensive more than it's skillful, then you get kicked out uh, of the environment. And that's what I find really fascinating about it. I think we have a perspective of rap battlers just being these kind of wildly offensive and childish uh, things. That's certainly what I thought when I started doing it. My students were involved in rap battles when I taught them in 
in English. And when I went in, I really thought that's what it was going to be. It was going to be lots of jokes about mums and uh, quite childish kind of stuff. But I learned a lot from the process. Um, you learn a lot about yourself as well, because anything anyone can say to you um, to, to, to point out your weaknesses and your faults, they're going to say it. And it's really quite a powerful thing to be stood there for, you know, uh, three 90 second rounds with someone facing you who's going to point out every possible thing they think they can come up with to hurt your feelings or to, to undermine you in front of an audience. So hold up a second, because you keep mentioning your students, but you're a rap battler. Who are these students? <laughs> <laughs> well, this is it. So I'm an, I was an English teacher. I'm not now. I, I was uh, for five years. Uh, I always wanted to be an English teacher and I loved teaching, but I spent a lot of time working with particularly um, disaffected young male students who felt very patronised within English classrooms. And they felt that poetry and uh, language and, 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 and writing was just not for them. It was not anything they were going to experience. And that was really what I got obsessed with when I was teaching. And I thought, well, maybe the, the issue is that we kind of tell our young people what they are and they aren't supposed to engage with within poetry. I think I've got quite a lot of issues with how we teach poetry, particularly at secondary um, uh, for GCSE. Um, and I thought, well, maybe I should just actually um, listen to my students for once. I try and learn something from them. Um, and they were writing rap lyrics and a lot of them were getting involved in rap battles. So I started a, a lunchtime club, a writing club where they would teach me. And that was the idea of the club is that they would come in and they would share what they were interested in and I would try and learn about it. Um, and then um, it's amazing the power, I think, of just saying to someone, tell me what you're interested in and genuinely caring about what they're telling you about. Uh, and then you can finish that conversation and go, can I tell you about Shakespeare then? And why I think Shakespeare is interesting. And who would have thought it? They're actually a lot more receptive to like listening to what you want to tell them about. If you show that they have like a, what they're talking about matters. So yeah, so that's what happened. Uh, I started, uh, they trained me up um, in the club eventually. Uh, and I went, uh, took part in the East of England King of the Mic rap battle tournament. I was scared that I'd get in trouble. And uh, but Jordan, one of my lads, he was like, sir, it's all right. No one has to know it's you, sir. It's like being a superhero, being a rap battler. You get your own rap name. And my first suggestion for a rap battle name, my name was, surname was Gris, was um, Christina Aguilera, which they didn't like. Um, <laughs> and, and, and then I said, what about Cristiano Ronaldo? And they were like, no. And uh, <laughs> they wanted me to call myself Gristol Meth. Um, oh my goodness which is just a bit too much for me to take on so uh, I wanted to be called Agatha Christie and they didn't know who that was so <laughs> in the end we agreed that I would be called the Count of Monte Cristo that was my rap battle name uh, and um, yeah I went out and, and got stuck in and I won uh, I won my first battle um, uh, against my first opponent I was pretty bad at it I couldn't really rhyme more than one syllable I've since learned that rap battlers rhyme multiple syllables uh, they call they call them assonant multis. I've got a heart of stone, like a garden gnome. You could say that, for example. Uh, and it's very appealing to listen to these kind of multiple syllables bouncing around. Uh, an MC, a good friend of mine, Shuffle. He was like, uh, he can rhyme monster raving loony party with concentrated fruit and barley. He did that in a freestyle once, uh, and they're just very satisfying to listen to. And I learned a lot about doing all that. Um, I then went and had a rap battle. Um, in South Brixton with a guy called Blizzard, an amazing 17-year-old uh, MC from Manchester. And the battle went viral, like crazy viral, uh, really. Like it got about five and a half million views, which is not a lot for a, a Minecraft video, but for, for a rap battle, it became the most viewed UK rap battle of all time. What I think is a bit sad about it is Blizzard 
was a 17-year-old lad who was so, uh, such an inspiring guy, I think. Like, he works really hard. He's got a great work ethic. He's really innovative and original in all of his punchlines and how he writes. If he'd been my student, I'd be so proud to have a student like that. I think he's amazing. And I think when the battle went viral, the national press really covered it as, like, this teen guy getting put in his place by a teacher. And that wasn't really what battling is from within. We we rely on each other. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a double act. And... And I really admired what he'd put together. And I thought it was interesting that we had this national press angle of like this gobby teenager needs to be kind of put in his place. And I think that's the vibe we, that's how we feel as a, as a culturally about teenagers. And I think that's how we feel that poetry should be. It's about putting them in their place. It's about teaching them what the right form of language is. Um, and I thought it was a bit sad that that was how then the media tried to play it. And also I thought was kind of, I guess what was kind of interesting about it is I couldn't really go back from that point. I just kind of wanted to carry on exploring. So you never went back to being a traditional teacher in a school teaching uh, English? I visit a lot of schools now. I work with a lot of um, young offenders institutes and training centres and prus, and I try and help them make poetry more tactile and more engaging and more fun and help teachers who often find it very difficult to to work through uh help help help, help young people to realize that it's something they can play with and they can uh and that they can enjoy what kind of results do you see what examples do you have of of doing this in a completely different way like using your knowledge and enthusiasm to mm. kind of come up with a new way of educating people particularly those who are deemed hard to educate what changes do you see in them for me, I get to experience the thing that got me into teaching, which teachers, I think, talk about all the time, which is this kind of light bulb effect when a student's eyes light up and they feel like they get it. Um, the highest grade has always been in English to write with originality and flair. And I've been to a lot of training when I started out teaching where I was told openly by examiners for, 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 for the major boards that you can't teach those things. I, they, you know, we, that was a, a kind of a regular thing that would be, be said. You can't teach originality and flair. It's an, an inherent thing that they've just got or they haven't got by the point they get to, the, to that, that stage. And I think you can, I think you absolutely can teach originality and flair. I think you just have to care about it enough that you make room for it. And that means making room for failure uh, and room for making mistakes. And the problem we have at the moment is the way that everyone is so stretched um, and everyone is so focused on these short-term goals there is, if you were to say to any teachers that I work with that they have room within their planning for the students to make mistakes through, you know, a week or two weeks worth of um, the course, it's just not there to come up with a creative, uh, you know, response to something. There's just not the room for it. And and what I do is I focus with students on, we, we play with language and we, 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 uh, we focus on trying to say things that no one else in the room can think of and, and being okay with making a mistake and like exploring things and trying to write our own ideas. I and mean, we kind of acknowledge that the best way to kind of learn about a sonnet is to write a sonnet, but there's just very little time within the school curriculum to really give young people the chance to kind of do that. So yeah, that's it. When you do, they light up. Just like the moment you say to a young person, what are you interested in? What, what, what lyrics mean something to you? It's like you kind of prick uh, a water balloon and it just gushes out of them. Given the opportunity, if you were given the curriculum, mm. would you change it dramatically then? Oh, gosh. Well, I, whew, I would probably... I, I, I tinker with the, the GCSE anthology unit uh, for AQA. I, I would make it so it wasn't a 
closed book exam. Um, I mean, for the the anthology item is. 15 poems they have to they have to memorize so students have to go into an exam knowing these poems off by heart knowing the quotes they're going to use off by heart with no notes i also would probably consider changing the anthology um a lot of the poems were still there when i was studying poetry um i don't think we study poems that the students often feel are that relevant to their lives you know it'd be kind of cool vanessa Casule's great piece about the colston statue being pulled down in bristol would be pretty cool to look at that poem talk about things that are actually going on in the world around us um, and, and what we can draw out of that. But I think that would mean you, you need to update that, that anthology every three years. And I think that should be a commitment to try and do that and to get some newer voices that aren't all kind of dead white men. I love the way you seem to embrace the idea of failure, particularly in learning and success. What's been your best failure and where did it take you? I think it's tricky because I failed so much. I think, do you know what? I, re- <laughs> I remember I remember when I was training to be a teacher, um, I was put in two schools. I was in one really rough school um, when I was started training and it went well. And I thought I, I really connected with the kids well. And I thought, wow. And it, the vibe was like, if you could work in this school, you can work anywhere. And I went to like a lovely little rural school and I turned up and I thought, well, this is going to be great. And I was given a year eight class and they had no respect for me whatsoever. It was an absolute nightmare. I, I did all this fun stuff, I thought, and they hated it. And everything I did, uh, they just like, they just ruined. And I remember one session, they were throwing paper planes. It was real classic, you know, classic kind of image stuff of them throwing paper planes, making fart noises. They were fighting in the back of the room and I was shouting at them to, to stop. And they and they literally said, we do not respect you. And they also go, like, we do not respect you. We will not do what you say. We do not care. And I remember going out of the classroom at the end of the session in tears and sitting in the staff room, crying my eyes out, thinking, I am never going to be able to do this. I'm never going to be able to teach anyone. I don't know what's happening. And I think from that point, I started to think, hang on, I didn't really, I don't really know the students' names. Like, I've not really spent much time getting to know them. This is all about me. And what am I doing? I'm shouting at them from the very beginning. This is where I end up kind of going, that I've got this direction and you have to be here with me on, on that. And I think that mistake... Uh, it's always, I always think of it as like one of my worst ever lessons. Um, I think it, it, that's what started me on the journey of rethinking how I teach or how I want to communicate with people. Ouch. So many kids telling you that they don't respect you. Oh that yeah. Sounds it was, painful. It was bad. That sounds really scary. <laughs> yeah. Going back to your school days, mm. what was one of the most memorable learning experiences that you got to have? I remember being in year nine and I had a boy called Shane Bush and Shane was like a cool guy. He was a bit tough, but I was going on pretty well with him. And I was like quite a geeky word guy. And we sat in the class and we were reading Jamaica in. We had this teacher who had us reading that. And uh, she was quite old and she was quite grouchy. And she liked me to read the book out because I was, um, you know, good at reading. And, and so I would read the book. And then she moved on to Shane after me once. And Shane stumbled through like a few lines and she stopped. And she told him he was an idiot. She told him he was thick. She told him that he would not be reading out again in the rest of the class. And then she got me to carry on reading and I had to sit and carry on reading. And I I think that stuck with me. And I I think there are ways in which we transmit that same message implicitly sometimes within our curriculum. Um, And Shane, at that point on, I remember speaking to him the next lesson and he was just like, I hate English. He hated everything about English. And I bumped into him years later and he said he always hated English since then. We did put some glue on a chair and she got stuck to it the following session. So we got our own back. But um, but 
But yeah. <laughs> I guess that we're not allowed to advocate that, but... No, absolutely. Lol. Um, for those who missed out on a well-rounded and inclusive education when it comes to English growing up, how can you advise that they can embrace learning about it now? Well, I think the first the first thing is is to is to be kind to yourself. I think is the very first stage, uh, and and uh, because I think a lot of this comes down to how you feel about yourself and about the momentum you give to something. From that point on, I would say the best thing is to either try and like reach out to communities uh, of of uh, of writers or um, people sharing their work and connect with them. I found personally like online like spoken word poetry communities have been amazingly welcoming um people of all ages and experience levels um connecting with those i mean i even have a club if anyone here is listening to this and wants to join my right club uh we meet on monday mornings it's totally free 9 30 every monday morning at 5 p.m every friday we meet on zoom uh and we just uh we set some targets and we have a chat about writing and we're as welcoming and uh uh as friendly as you can get that is uh, yeah, so that's right club and honestly if you would like to join up hit us up on Facebook um, and anyone is welcome to join. Um, but otherwise I would say start trying to like ask about, try, try and try and read something you've, you'd feel interested in. Um, have a little look around for any kind of ideas, things to kind of stimulate your writing. But, um, but it's really got to come from you and then, and then starting to kind of make those first steps. Your right club sounds really good. Yeah, it's cool. I think whenever there's been some really great writers that have emerged, I've, I've often found that they've emerged from within a community of some kind. Um, and I think finding other people you can connect with, I think is really powerful, particularly at the moment um, when we all feel so isolated. What does ambition mean to you and how do you succeed on your own terms, Mark? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, my ambitions have changed over the course of my life, just as I think a lot of young people's ambitions have changed over the course of their time in school. I think when I was younger, I kind of wanted to be like, I'd quite like to be famous having had the viral success on a few things it's fun it's cool but i just don't really feel very comfortable with with uh with that kind of stuff so i, I think to be honest um i've been interviewing a lot of mcs and talking a lot of mcs and a, an mc i met called luna c he said to me the other day he said you just got to know what you want and if what you want is your family to be all right and for you to make enough money you can pay the bills and that you can have the lifestyle you want then that's what you've got to focus on. You've got to put that at the front and centre. Have you heard of the Open University? Uh, yes, I think it's incredible. I think it's it's doing it's fulfilling such an, a vital role. And I think uh, I think Open University is the place to be. I think if you want to be um, pushing like your, your 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 thinking, your practice, anything you want to further what you, you do uh, in a space that is like progressive and forward thinking and is uh, is open to listening, then I think it's the place to be. Cheers, Mr. Grist. <laughs> it's been brilliant chatting to you. I think what you're doing is absolutely wonderful. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been lovely to chat. And um, yeah, thanks, thanks for having me along. Mark's career embodies this concept of learning things on your own terms. He's constantly embracing new ideas about how you can do things. And he's inspiring the next generation of writers to think in the same way in terms of being free. Taking that concept into higher education, the Open University is dedicated to enabling people's ambitions by making flexible and supported education accessible to everyone. Our next guest can tell us all about how that works in practice and how he's been supported in taking on a new challenge. 
I met with Samuel, who's studying for a degree in psychology, alongside working as a learning support assistant, to talk about ambition, balance, and how to inspire kids to learn. Hi, Samuel. Nice to meet you. Hi, you too. You're doing so much at the moment. Tell me everything. <laughs> um, so starting from October this year, I have uh, started a psychology degree at the OU, which um, is a really exciting thing to do alongside my job, I think. So um, my job is working in special educational needs, um, so supporting children with uh, different needs, autism, ADHD, things like that. And what made you decide to do that? Um, it's something I've been quite keen on for a long time. I've always had a, an interest in psychology, but uh, fortunately with finding this work, you know, I came out of school, didn't go in straight into university like a lot of my friends, wanted to find my feet and ended up loving working in special educational needs. And then I thought, actually, hold on, I'm doing special educational needs work. I love psychology and they really do tie into each other. You know, it's a, it's a great thing to have, I think, for someone who works in this sort of field. What was the moment that you decided that OU was the direction for you? I, I've had a lot of colleagues, I think, talking to me about it because a lot of them wanted to work while they studied. And a, a lot of people said, actually, you know, you need to check out the OU if you want to do this, this course. Because I'd, I'd mentioned, you know, psychology is a passion. I'd like to study it. And um, actually, during lockdown, a lot of time, obviously, to reflect meant that I, I was thinking, what do I really want to do in the next year? And I thought, I don't want to stop working. I love my I love my job. I want to keep doing my job. But I do want to study. And I did a few um, open learn courses, which is uh, free modules they offer not full modules, but partial modules to see if you would enjoy doing the course. Um, and I picked up a few on psychology and absolutely loved it. Just thought, this is what I want to do. I want to learn more about this. Uh, so contacted them and they were, you know, the support is, is brilliant. And I just thought, yeah, this is what I want to be doing myself. I want to be spending time learning while I work. And they clearly have the resources. I love how kind of amped you seem about it. You don't seem <laughs> weary of the fact that you're juggling a lot. We are early 2021 in terms of we spent a lot of time indoors by now if you're in the UK. But yeah. you seem refreshed somehow by doing <laughs> the course. I, I love it. I mean, I think I'm I'm lucky because I do love what I, my work. I adore what I do and I, I love the studies. I find them really interesting. So, you know, in what has been, like say, a, a tough year, there's been a lot of time indoors. Um, I've been quite lucky, obviously, to be in my job a lot, being a, a key worker. But um, it, it's just, if it was anything else that I didn't enjoy so much, or if I didn't click with, with the course, with my job, I think I'd be struggling. But I'm fortunate that I love both of them. And they both tie in so well. I, I don't feel like I'm, you know, un, under immense pressure to do anything because I want to be doing it. What does the content of your course look like? It comes under two sort of different books. So I've got one that investigates uh, psychology in general. So we look at studies, um, well, any, anything like that. And we've got one that comes under um, how we conduct these studies. So what are the methods? What are the different things we can do and can't do ethically? And I think they, they're both extremely interesting books, which also tie into the online material they give us. So... Each week is set up in a structured way, so you can tick off when you've done an activity. Um, and the online material uh, includes things like videos. Um, so they, they might be videos produced by people at the Open University, or they might be ones that they found that are relevant to our studies. 
and then lots of little activities that help us develop our understanding. What do you love most about the course? I think it's quite hard to narrow it. Um, there's things that I love that I didn't think I'd love. So I never thought I'd I'd make great friends, which sounds silly, but being online, I thought, well, I might know one or two people who do the course, but I probably won't make good friends. And they've given so many great outlets. Uh, there's uh, forums and things like that you can talk to people on and really get to know each other. And just, just through the tutors too, you know, there's my tutor um, has been fantastic. The feedback I get on my first assignment and going into my second one has been so helpful. I think it's, it's, it sounds sort of maybe a bit cliche, but it is just a really nice sort of almost family-like community um, where everyone seems to be so helpful and we all know we're there for the same reason. It's, it's a really nice environment, I think. And how are you finding fitting in studying around your job? So my work has been really supportive um, and given me a lot of opportunities, but I think it is quite a fluid transition. It, it fits really well into what I do. Um, it's something I can do in the evenings if I need to as well. So it doesn't always have to be on the days I have. I can think actually going to study a bit this evening. It doesn't have to be in scheduled slots. So it's not, again, it's not as challenging as I thought it would be to actually fit the studies in, which is really, really handy. You seem to be smashing it. Is that to do with the support of your tutors and what are they like? I think so, yeah. And I, I've mentioned my tutor, but I think it would be probably a bit vague to just say it's just my tutor that's helped because I've had um, a lot of online tutorials where I've spoken to other tutors that aren't my personal one. And it's such a friendly environment. I think I was so nervous to meet them. Uh, the idea, you know, these people are going to be sort of teaching us what to do. And it was it was a quite a scary thing. But they were so lovely and so supportive. And you never thought there was a silly question to ask. Anything I've asked them, I've got a really serious answer. They've really guided me. Um, I think that makes a massive difference. You know, it, it could have been a much trickier year to this point. What about the other people in your life? What do they think of what you're up to? Do your colleagues support it? Do your friends and family like you being so busy? <laughs> I think, um, I think, especially at work, my colleagues absolutely support it. They, a lot of them, I say, as I say, um, have used the OU for certain things before, and you know, I think they see sometimes. I kind of there's there's things I'll go and study. And I'll, I'll kind of bring it into my day to day work. Uh, I think they notice it and they quite like the fact that I'm trying to develop, you know, new strategies based on what I've learned and things like that. I am busy a lot of the time. So I think at home it's a bit more like more time focused on that. But I don't think it completely interrupts my life. I mean, life's been a bit interrupted in the last year anyway, but I still feel like I get time to sort of relax and do other things. Having interviewed a few open university students now, I do get a sense of community spirit that I think is infectious and inspiring. Do you feel part of a community despite learning at a distance? Absolutely. Uh, I think that really wasn't something I was expecting. I thought, um, like I said, I thought I thought there'd be people around and maybe I'd learn a bit about a few of them. And, but uh, I've got the communities on the site and um, away from the site as well we, we've had people who, who will just talk um even about things not necessarily related to the course it can be about common interests and things like that and um i found myself actually slip into a few different communities within the open university go on where, give me some examples like what <laughs> um i've got a little because I, I quite like my gaming i've got a little community that i'm in that um 
just love to sort of every now and again have a few games or something have a bit of a chat and uh it's really nice to think that because you're often available at the same times if there's an assignment coming up you're probably all focusing on an assignment so you kind of know when people are going to be about and wanting to do things i think it's lovely i've made some really good friends haven't obviously been able to meet them in person due to all of this but it's still i can still tell that i've got good friends there which is a really good thing so you work with children that aren't necessarily deemed as academic uh, in some respects. Would you say to everybody listening or anybody that knows anyone with any kind of diagnosis from ADHD to mental health issues, you know, I'm really talking across the spectrum. Yeah. Do you think that there is a place in learning and academia for us all? Absolutely. I think... um... You've got to look at the development. You know, some of my students that since I've started at this uh, this school, the development they've made from entering as as year sevens, which is is a tricky prospect for anyone, let alone if you've got um, some sort of special educational need, to now a few years on, seeing how how much they've developed and how well they fit into what it, you know what is coined as the the mainstream school. It, it's it's fantastic, and the intelligence they have. I think sometimes we find it so easy to write people off based on a diagnosis, but I work with some incredible, incredible students who um, I, I think most people would be amazed to, to know. We've heard a lot from Mark about the power of education to inspire kids to be creative and think differently. How do you think that we can do that? How do you think we can really innovate the education system? Um, I think there's a lot a lot of different ways. I think one thing that I always notice and I always think is key, um, and it's become a lot more of a focus in the last five or six years, especially, is this this look towards wellness and, and mental health and things like that. Definitely when I was in school, there was a much bigger focus when I started on the academic success, which is always important. But I think I've seen recently, especially since I've returned to working in education, we've started to look at actually, how do we help a child's mental health? How do we make sure that children are happy where they are, they've got good friendship groups, they've got good support. And I think that is, for me, an essential part of any any child's education. How important do you think language is when it comes to that in terms of psychology and how we communicate to young people? Massively, um, especially in, in my department too. Um, working with, with children with autism and ADHD, you don't often think about it, but you use a vastly different language. And I think it's it's really important that you learn how you're going to approach different situations depending on, you know, the, the child, the student. Um, you've got to look at so many different things like cultural backgrounds and things, what is acceptable, um, and how can you help them develop in their own use of these things. So I think uh, the language we use every day is really important. And what's your biggest lesson that you've learned? I think I've learned... I've definitely learned how to study again, but I've, I think I've learned never to sort of judge things on first glance. There's been a few times I've looked at sort of the way things are set up and and thought, oh, I don't know how I'm going to do an activity. You know, am I, am I able to complete this or is this too much for me? But I think if you just give things a go, don't just think oh, that's too much. I can't do it. You often find you slip into a pattern where you actually can do a lot more than you think. So when you look at the future, what do you want from it? Uh, I think what I want to do is is move towards continuing to support um, children's development. And psychology is the perfect way to do that. 
And I think um, hopefully by specialising in a topic through the OU, I can continue to learn the vital skills for something such as developmental psychology. And of course, I know that the Open University offers uh, postgraduate courses, which also tie into my interests. So I think most likely I'll be looking to continue studying with them as long as possible to develop my skills as much as I can. Every OU student I speak to just wants more. <laughs> they they want to go on and do more with the OU. It's so encouraging. <laughs> yeah, I think there's, there's so much, so much good support. You just sort of want to be there and be a part of it. You always feel like you're welcome. You always feel like there's more and more content in, in all areas. So I think it's, it's not really a hard thing to want to stay with. Thank you so much for your time, Samuel. Oh, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. It's inspiring meeting people like Samuel and Mark, who are clearly so passionate about the different processes of learning and are living and breathing it themselves. There's such power in teaching to open up perspectives, whatever our age. I think it proves that our education system doesn't have to follow the traditional ways of teaching subjects. You can enjoy Shakespeare, but in your own way. And of course, you can study it in your own way too. Thank you so much for listening. Next week, we're carrying on with our journey through the curriculum with science on our terms and getting the lowdown on everyone's favourite doctor when I'll be joined by Dr Ranj Singh. Don't miss us. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And whilst you're there, why not give us a quick rating and review? See you next time. You've been listening to Life on Our Terms, a podcast with The Open University. It was presented by me, Gemma Kearney, and produced by Listen Entertainment. Listen Entertainment.